0: In the middle of a series uh, entitled Jesus Economics, last week I shared a couple uh, preliminary ideas or at least some grounding teachings of why we're doing this series. Number one, uh, the theoretical and the philosophical and the theological talk that oftentimes people do um, is one step in the journey for what it means for us as believers uh, to be followers of Jesus. The other piece of that puzzle is to actually figure out and to think through and process what does that actually look like on the ground. And so our guests um, are coming to help us understand better what this actually looks like on the ground. Number two, we can talk all day about the ideas that Jesus might have about economic theories, his economic vision. Um, But it's really, really critically important for us to recognize that there are Jesus followers that have been doing this work for many, many years, for decades, um, and even longer. And we want to learn from them, and we want to have a posture of humility. And then third, we also hope that you're inspired, that in the midst of maybe not quite sure what faith is supposed to look like, uh, maybe a little bit of uncertainty of the news that you hear, um, maybe you're still wrestling with what the faith in Jesus actually looks like in in this 21st century. We hope that you're also inspired by the work that these people are doing. So our guest today is John Liotti from AbleWorks, and what I'd like to do is share with you a brief video from one of their programs. There was a video that they had on their website um, that overviewed everything, but this particular video, I thought, spoke to the fundamental series that we're in, and there were some nuggets in there that I thought were just really quite incredible about the work that they're doing. So take a look at this video here, and then we'll introduce John.
1: I think most people would be surprised at how many homes where families are not having the conversation about money, access, resources and how to leverage these things. And I think the beauty of the Future Profits program is that we not only expose the students to this, but we provide them scenarios, and we provide them opportunities to ask questions and to interact with real people who can give insight into this arena. It allows our students the opportunity to change their cycle or break their cycle of poverty, which is ultimately our goal.
0: Uh, My favorite thing, was honestly budgeting because it's a skill I use today. Well, I'm using now because I'm a senior and I'm going to college off next year. We actually started doing a budget with my mentor about how um, how much my school costs, the tuition, um, and everything. So how to like how to not spend your money on like um, on instant gratification, but like more on delayed gratification because I know college is gonna pay out more than just like a pair of Jordans I want right now.
1: I liked all the skills that they taught us I'm, I'm going through a transition period where I'm going to become an
0: adult and I'm going to have to take care of my own money and with the skills they taught us, I, I feel confident about that. My favorite part would be uh, how interactive they are. And it's it's really cool, like, I liked how they're able to um, have that kind of connection with us rather than just kind of talking at us, they kind of talked with us, they kind of taught us a lot. My favorite part about Future Profits was that All the teachers and the future profit teachers kinda just are like family, like they make they don't make you feel like they're teaching you, they make you feel like you're learning like together about life. So I really like how it's like life skills, not just like learning about like math or something. Like it's life skills and they really need it. John Liotti has extensive community development experience, having served in under-resourced families and youth in California's Central Valley, Los Angeles, Central Florida, New York City, and Northern Mexico. In 2007, John co-founded AbleWorks in East Palo Alto, an organization with a passion to focus on the economic issues underlying the communities in Northern California, pioneering several innovative programs such as Future Profits, the one that we just featured here, a curriculum for financial education and decision-making skills for youth, and Liveable, or Able, Livable livable, uh, a cohort-based support goal-setting and finance and career management program for single mothers aged uh, 18 to 30. John has a master's degree in intercultural studies with an emphasis in ethics from Fuller Theological Seminary, is a chaplain for the East Palo Alto Police Department, and serves as a board member for the Christian Community Development Association, YCOR, and the Housing Leadership Council of San Mateo, and he has no spare time. So, friends, give it up and welcome John Liotti, please.
1: Thank you all. It's so good to see friends here. Um, Where'd Sue Ann go? Sue Ann left. Where'd she go? Oh, there she is right there. And this guy, I've known him since forever. Forever. (laughs) Um,
0: John, can you share with us very briefly a little bit of your background and how you got into this particular work? And then um, I'd like to dig into some of your study and your thinking around um, economics, the way of Jesus. Um, And all that stuff. And actually, one of the things I wanted to share with all of you that I've met John a couple times. We actually did a podcast together, which is on our uh, the SparkCast. If you're interested in catching up, and one of the things that I've always appreciated every time I've gotten together with you, John, is that I always walk away challenged, enriched. Um, Your perspectives and insights are always so meaningful and thoughtful, which is perfect for who we are as a community. So, I'm very much looking forward to you sharing. So, um, how did you get to this particular work. Tell us a little bit about your background and your your process and journey into this kind of work.
1: Sure. Um, I started, you know, I went right into this work right out of high school. Um, I grew up in a working class family and, and, um, you know, came to Christ. My dad's a pastor. I came to Christ really young. Um, And immediately out of the gate, um, I went and started working in urban communities in the U.S. and some of the places that that Pastor Kevin mentioned. Um, Eventually, after being in Mexico for four years, Serving refugees on the border, um, we land, I landed in the Central Valley where my wife is from. We were there for a number of years, and then eventually came here. Um, I served at uh, Bayshore Christian Ministries for about six years. That's where I know Sue Ann and Kwame. and um, and we launched AbleWorks uh, kind of out of that time, really wanting to, in a sense, move upstream. Um, and we you know we were looking at the root causes that were that were keeping people in poverty and injustice and, in, and in bad cycles. And our desire really was to move forward and help people make better decisions so they don't end up in the traps uh, downstream. So, oh, I mean, just, just even right
0: there, I have a, a bunch of other questions. Tell us, uh, can you share with us a little bit about your faith journey in the midst of all of that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, I mean, I, coming, being growing up in a Christian family was one experience. And then I've had a, at least two other conversions since then. Um, significantly, I think, um, cause I, I think salvation is actually a process and more than a, a one magic prayer you pray at one time. So we could, br- yeah, I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, it's just, you, you won't offend ma- anybody here. Magic no. prayers. Don't do it for me. It's like, there's a work of renovation and, and, and conversion that's going on, I think all the time in all of our lives. So, um, you know, growing up in an evangelical background and a Pentecostal background, my parents were involved in something called the Jesus Movement, which is back in the 60s and 70s. There was a very specific uh, type of type of worship that was going on in that situation, and you know, it ended up birthing the Moral Majority and, and all that sort of conversation too. But um, when uh, when we when we encountered poverty, really in Mexico, um, it really shook my faith. And and at that point, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this gospel works anymore, because we're out, like, preaching, and people are raising their hands to, to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and we're rejoicing about that, and we're sending them right back into the slums in the, in the desperate situations they were when we started preaching to them. And I just would believe that, man, really all they needed to do was to accept Jesus and pray the magic prayer, and then everything was going to magically be okay. And after, like, living and working and, and struggling in, in a poor community for, you know, four, four years, um, it just it didn't mean that much anymore. So I landed back in the Central Valley where, where Melissa's from, almost um, destitute. There was some burnout ministry burnout going on too at the same time. Um, and really now, and at that point there were two intersections and two and two men that came into my life. One virtually and one for reals. Um, the virtual one was um, was Martin Luther King. Now you all would say like, oh yeah, of course everybody knows about King. But coming up in a conservative white evangelical Republican background, King was a communist, so we we didn't talk about King. So all of a sudden, I'm reading King, and it's like that's the gospel. I mean, it was a it was something stirred in me like I had never felt before. And then uh, then I came into contact with Dr. John Perkins, who's another civil rights leader, um, who's the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, and and here was a man that sort of had lived it, and I was able to to literally walk with and walk in his in his shadow. And without sort of the intersection of those two men in my life, I don't know that I have faith right now. Wow. The next conversion that really happened was, um, was when I started reading um, Catholic social teaching. Um, as, as Pastor Kevin mentioned, my, in my seminary program, I, I focused my efforts on ethics and started to read a lot of um, Gustavo Gutierrez and some of the other Catholic theologians who were writing about systemic and generational poverty. And again, you know, coming from an American perspective, we said, you know, you guys got to lift up by your bootstraps. And there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Let me say that. So I'm not saying that that's not, like, untrue. But I fail to recognize the systems that keep people in poverty. And Gustavo Gutierrez and the liberation theologians really start to attack the sinful systems that keep people in bondage um, that, that they're calling believers to attack systems as well as, and structures as well as individual choices. Okay, so this is why I love talking with you.
0: Can we go back to your—you your, discussed— if it had not been for MLK and Dr. John Perkins, you don't know if you'd have faith. Is that did I hear you correct? Absolutely. Can you describe that shift in more detail? What was what was the religion that you had and what has now become the faith that you that you transitioned into and now currently are either identify with or currently wrestle with. What is what is that? How would you articulate that? Because that yeah. that seems so central to your journey and the work that you're doing um, on the ground. That's,
1: that's a great question. It's I, I was taught and I and I ministered a gospel of of salvific conversion. Pray the magic prayer. Um, and that was what I was told was the only thing that that mattered. And 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 my evangelical experience reinforced that on so many ways about the experience, about the moment, about the even the way we worship. Um, when I read King, it 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 completed the gospel in a way that never was completed before. Wow. That the gospel was about society. It was about the beloved community. It was about community development. It was about about the injustice of garbage workers in in Montgomery, Alabama. It was about. Um, yeah, it was about Rosa Parks. You know, it was about all the things that we know about the the heroes of the civil rights movement. All of a sudden, that became a gospel issue for me, and before it never had.
0: Yeah, that's amazing and brilliant. After that, you continued like you still had that uh, either crisis of faith. I don't know if that's the right word, but you're ministering in Mexico, and there's a disconnect between the gospel that you're working. So you shift into this particular movement. What shifts in your mind? Uh, from a ministry perspective then? Because you were doing work before this awakening with um, the Catholic um, ministers and and writers, et cetera, and then you continued into this work. What shifted between those two?
1: Yeah, the easiest way I could say that, and I'm I'm stealing this from a friend just to give credit where credit's due. Um, at, At the time, my gospel consisted of basically two elements. It was proclamation and it was discipleship, and it stopped there. And I think most evangelical, many evangelical churches, that's, that's the complete gospel. I mean, there's worship in there, but that's, that's different. That's more how the church sort of operates on a day-to-day basis. So what, what I come to understand now is that to complete the gospel, you also have to have acts of service, which arguably some evangelicals are, are fairly good at too, but also advocacy and, and, and working for systemic change. And I would say without sort of those four elements, our gospel is incomplete. You know, because we can do all the other things we can preach and we can disciple and we can actually do some acts of service. But without changing the systems, then um, then we stop short of really uh, making making the true impact of the gospel. So really, when I started to see things that way, um, that really began to change my ecclesiology, change the way that we do church. In my mind, the way I want to do church to something very different than just stopping at a certain point. Yeah.
0: Are you guys on board with this? This is this is brilliant because I don't think Christians are very attuned to talking about systemic changes. We're so focused on personal changes, which is what you alluded to earlier. Like the, there are things that we do need to change. There's growth that needs to happen in well, what here. What bothers me
1: is that, and I'm just I'm gonna say it plain. Is that all right? Um, it, it bothers me that that well everybody. <laughs> I'm speaking in my, my wife told me not to speak in absolute, so I'm trying not to. So you never um, do. <laughs> so I never. So I never will do that again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, many Christians, I'll keep it with the church, um, are afraid of, of the hard stuff. They, we want like, you know, everything is black and everything is white. Either you're this or you're that. You're Republican or you're Democrat. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And to really be relevant in our society, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, I think we've got to be really comfortable with the gray. And we've got to sort of exist in the complexity of a society and the complexity of what ministry really is to reach people. Because the old way of thinking that that um, that dichotomy that of, of thinking of black and white and and yes or no is it it really hinders our ability to reach society and impact society in a way that really matters. Do you
0: see that happening, it, just from your perspective in churches in in Silicon Valley and other uh, kind of faith communities? Do you do you feel like because uh, if, if I can say so as humbly as we can 't you 're kind of speaking to the choir like we 're right. totally on board with this, and we this is one of the reasons why I love talking with you because I get kind of inspired once again it 's like oh there 's other people in our in our tribe that think this way that embrace the challenge and the gray and the mystery um, and the hard work It is it, you know following Jesus is not a, a walk in the park you know it 's hard work and it comes with significant challenges and i 'm just kind of curious from your perspective. this was not in the notes I was do you, do you see more people of faith um, embracing that from your perspective, um, especially people, maybe even especially people who are engaged in the work that you're engaged with? That's,
1: it's such a complicated question um, because, you know, I sit, I sit with pastors of many of the churches that we know around here and I talk to them and, and conceptually they get everything. But they're constrained in their ability to actually do anything about it because of the way our church structure is. Because we're built around a paid clergy, and you've got to keep people in the seat so they pay their tithes, so that we can provide the services, so that more people come, so that we get more pastors, so that we can serve more. And it's just like this vicious cycle of— Oh, man. Uh, so, so those pastors that I know who, who I think are generally—who generally, who generally would, would assent to a lot of the things that, that I say and others say, um, can't get in the pulpit and say it because of those issues. So that's a problem. What I do see it is, that I see it in, in churches and oppressed communities. Um, because they live it on a day-to-day oh, yeah, basis. Yeah. so And that's why I'm so just blessed when I get in the communities of color and, 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 and work with pastors there because they understand the holistic nature of the gospel yeah. in a very different way. In many ways, you've just
0: described the church as one of the systemic issues.
1: Yeah, I agree because, you know, I say this all along. Now I, I'm, I'm, I'm progressive enough to want the government to do the right thing, but it's still the empire. Um, and, and I, I'm still not, I, I don't want to be a citizen of the empire. I'm a citizen of the church. And at the end of the day, I believe the church is the answer to the problems in, in the world at, at the end of the, and if we would be the church, we would be salt and light. We would be yeast and in, in the dough, we would be the light on the hill. We would be all those things. I think there could be a greater impact, uh, in, in areas like Silicon Valley, but all over the world. I mean, the thing that excites me about Silicon Valley and why what excites me about you all is Look where we live. I mean, we live, in, we live in Rome during the Roman times. We live in London during the Industrial Revolution. We live in uh, New York right at around 1945. Well, this is the most influential place in the world right now. And if we can get this right as a church here, we can impact the world in a new and special way. Whether we will, I don't know. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm fired up already. See, I, I love, thank you so much just even for that. I feel the same kind of impulse and the seeing the potential that we have here. Let's take that vision that you've just preached to us and put it on the ground. How would you articulate the economic vision that Jesus has commissioned, part one? Part two, how do you see that economic vision playing out in your current work? And then part three, <laughs> What can we continue to do to push that vision forward? So part one, What, do you, how do you see or how would you articulate what Jesus' economic vision actually is? From your studies as a theologian, as somebody who um, loves Jesus and, and studies him. And then we'll stop at number two, which is how is that actually working on the ground? And what are the realities that you're facing on the ground that are preventing that
1: vision from coming to pass? So... Luke 4, Jesus walks in. After, after being tempted in the wilderness, he walks into the synagogue. Um, and he grabs the scrolls uh, from, from the rabbi, um, which was his, his right to do. And um, with, with the Hebrew scriptures in mind, with the Hebrew prophets in mind, with Amos and Isaiah and Ezekiel in mind... He takes these scrolls and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Did you hear that? To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stands in the synagogue and says, It is the year of Jubilee. Now, we often Christians interpret that as, well, Jesus came to make us saved. We say in magic prayer, everything is great. But what Jesus was really saying there was that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he is the, the harbinger of justice that is, is now and yet is to come. So, and then, and then I love the Gospel of Luke, because if you read the Gospel of Luke with the correct eyes, you see that with that context, Jesus dismantles over and over and over again the social barriers that kept people in bondage with children, with Samaritans, with women, and, and he was, Luke, through Christ, was, was painting the picture of uh, kingdom come in the context of Jesus' ministry, and it continues on through Acts, and we can go from there. So I, so I see Jesus' message as liberation and jubilation, hmm. um, as setting, setting physical debts free, setting spiritual debts free, and releasing prisoners, opening up the kingdom of God to Jew and Gentile alike, to man and woman as Samaritan the Jew. So I think it starts and ends there. Now, I, I often get asked the question, what do we do, especially here? <laughs> and it's hard because it's like we live in Silicon Valley. I mean, I know what, you, I know what some of you are paying in your mortgages. I mean, it's, that's real, you know, and that's a check every month that you got to pay or rent. That's a check you got to pay. It's expensive to live here. So... So the question really always is how do we live out that gospel in the context of, of the work that we do here in the life that we live? Because it's easy for me to say, just give it all up and go serve, go serve the poor. Yeah, yeah, you should do that. Of course, you should serve the poor. But, but we all live in the real world and we've got families and such. So I, you know, I, And I wish I had the magic answer to say, here's the answer, you all. Um, but I, I, I think it's about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness trusting that everything will be given to us if we do so. And you got to work that out. I can't work it out for you. I'm trying to work it out for me, and I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> so you know what I mean? But I love what King, King said something in um, The Drum Major Instinct. If you ever listen to that, you should go do it. I almost drove off the road listening to it one time. Um, he said... Um, said, everything can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And so King lays down the gauntlet there. He's like, look, it's all of us. It's, it's, it's a heart of grace. Understanding the plight of the immigrant, understanding the plight of the homeless, understanding the plight of the poor, understanding the, the plight of the oppressed, understanding the plight of the, the, the people in mass, stuck in mass incarceration and, and stuck in police brutality, and all you know all the isms and all the issues that we 're dealing with right now, and having that our soul generated by the love of God and the love of Christ through nurtured through worship and and discipleship and and moving out under the power and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because like Hudson Taylor, the, the great missionary would say that God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. So my call is to go back to you and say, what are you supposed to do? It could be serving in a homeless shelter. Might be that. It could be giving it all up and moving into a, an oppressed community. It could be Tutoring a child—I I don't know. It could be—it could be something that seems insignificant, but yet is super significant, and it might be something that is is truly prophetic and and changing, completely changing your lifestyle. The key there is listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and responding correctly.
0: I really appreciate that because uh, I mean, some of us get so overwhelmed and daunted with the numbers and the the system that is it does feel like the little things that we're doing aren't really making much of a difference or or what who we are or the kind of work that we do is just so insignificant why even try and that in and of itself can be some sort of systemic um, challenge because you know we want to see we want to see big things happen and we're well, it was just five bucks, or it was just like what you said, just one tutoring session, or whatever. So, I,
1: I, you know, I try. I, I've been doing this for thirty years, and and probably twenty nine of the thirty years, I did it out of a messiah complex. Maybe that's a little too exaggerating, but hmm. you know, and my messiah complex says it's got to be the great thing, but but the gospel is the small things. It's the mustard seed. Hmm. Um, and it's the little the little acts of kindness that can really create a revolution. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying, man, I, I really hope some of you will just completely like give it all up and go do something radical. I mean, that's because that's real too, but that's not reality for most of us. So, you know, it's funny. I, I you saw some of the things with the Future Prophets kids. I mean, and Tom, Pastor Tom's a great example of of somebody who just went and served in a Future Prophets class for for a couple years. Um, and I often hear from the students about some interaction they had with one of our volunteers who came in and and how it impacted their, their perspective. Well, that's real. You know, that's the kingdom of God. Yeah. I just want to,
0: if I can turn my attention to my beloved Spark community. I mean, what John said is just so beautiful to me because we, for those of you who've been around Spark, know that we are very careful sometimes to tell you this is what now what you are supposed to do as a result of said teaching like we have a teaching we're trying to study who jesus is and then we there's a there's a natural impulse that can come or a natural cultural expectation that now i as the pastor or somebody whoever is speaking here will give you exactly the thing that you are to do and we've even had some people in our community say well just tell me what to believe tell me what to do And what I love about what you said is it's just the reaffirmation that there's a principle, there's an ethic, there's a calling, the jubilation, liberation. I love those two words. And now each and every one of us also has a responsibility to think wisely about it. Somebody else can't tell you exactly what that means in your context and in your situation. And as a result of that, and I think you're alluding to this, the person who does literally sell everything, give it to the poor, and go live um, with with no material possessions, that work is honorable as much as somebody who doesn't do that but shows up and tutors and shares and, and, and gives. And maybe even no more than. And maybe even no more than right. So, and that's a hard. The, I don't know that that even as I'm saying it out loud, it can sound dissonant. Like shouldn't. Shouldn't Jesus, follow, like if you, if you were really a Jesus follower, John, right? <laughs> wouldn't you, wouldn't you take his words literally and go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me? Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you do that? You know,
1: the funny thing is, is at the end of the day, and again, maybe this is my personality coming out a little bit, but nothing that you do matters, but everything that you do matters, <laughs> you know? And it's, so it's like at the end of it all, what you're, you're either faith, what you, 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 we will be judged on whether or not we were faithful, and and we're not going to change anything. I mean, it's but we can be part of a revolution that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel that changes everything too. It's that it's that weird like tension of like, you know, giving it all but keeping it and and all that. So I we don't want to have a false, in my view, I don't think we want to have a false ex- expectation or or. Or think we're greater than we are because mm. we're really just servants. Yeah. But it's servants that can change the world.
0: Yeah. You know, is that, you know, does that make sense? It's, it, it, ma- it makes perfect sense in my mind. I mean, part of the work that we've done, we've taught from uh, this particular platform that the early Christian followers lived this way like they they saw liberation jubilation they i mean in acts chapter 2 chapter 4 they sell everything that they have give it to those who have need right and we have historical records from ancient roman historians that said these christians how dare they like they call foreigners brothers and treat them as family so we have these like records in the ancient world and it's really kind of incredible to see them live in that way um and it does feel like the paradox of these two things, like, okay, that one that one act of kindness and grace and compassion that you extended from an economic you know, place didn't really conquer the Roman Empire, right? right. That, that one thing, there was still a Roman Empire. There were still taxes that were being uh, taken by the empire, but it made a huge world of difference, and the collective nature of that over time is what has brought us here and the, some of the foundations and the ethical foundations of Western civilization, et cetera. So, I, yeah, I think what you're saying totally resonates with the work, and it's dissonant in our head. Like, how do you get your brain wrapped around doing that work isn't going to change that we live in a capitalist society, that we you know, have to be governed by gentrification and all the forces of Silicon Valley and the massive wealth, right? We're not going to change that, but you're changing everything, through your work, right? So that's
1: yeah. I, th- I think it makes total sense to me. <laughs> I, it's and I'm not saying don't. Not, your th- your life doesn't matter, and th- don't hear me on that. I'm saying keep it in perspective, and the call is to be faithful, and the way we're faithful is we listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do, and that ultimately what matters. When I think back of my own life, there's there's and think about your life too. I bet there's half a dozen people that came in into contact with you either for a moment or for a season that just completely changed your life and, and, and made you be who you are. I can, I can think of a few. And um, and at the end of my life, that's who I'll be thinking most about. So I can be that person, absolutely. In a life of a student, in a life of a young mom, in one of your lives, you can be that for me too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um,
0: can you share... Briefly, what are the very real economic forces that are happening? Like, can you just give an update about the dynamics that are happening sure. in our area and the application of the work that you're doing in response to the, all of those things? Because you talked about both personal and heart change as well as systemic change as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about
1: how you're living this out on the ground. Everything rises and falls on housing. I don't need to tell you that. I mean, it's just the beginning and the end in the way we're, we're successful or not based on whether or not people can get secure, stable housing. So um, the, the funny thing about this area is that we live, people can make more money here than just anywhere else. I mean, I was at a place in uh, Campbell yesterday. I mean, they're starting out $20 an hour for servers. I mean, that's unheard of across the nation, hmm. but it's still not enough. So, so that's sort of the backdrop of everything. And then our work with, especially with single moms, but even, even with students because it's more of a family situation with them. Um it's, it's working with them to, um, to, to get their lives ready to, uh, to do one of two things, either to compete for an affordable place to live or a place on the market if they can uh, move their career in that way, or leave. Okay. And we used to not talk like that. I, I'm a community developer in my history. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the ways we're counseling some of the women is, is really preparing them for a life in the Central Valley or a life somewhere else, because that's where you can live and buy a house and, and secure your family. And that's really sad to me. Uh, I don't like that. I mean, I, I would love to stand here and say, we can fight gentrification in the Bay Area. And and actually, we do, you know, in one-off situations. And that's very important, because it really does impact a family. But in the aggregate, I think ultimately, there's got to be a movement across, like, cities and, uh, you know, things like public transportation and all these other big issues come into play. So, Our role really is to prepare people to survive in the economy. What we tell our moms is they really have two choices. Um, Because they can make really good money here. We we did a a research project with some uh, Stanford folks a couple years ago. Asked the question, are there living wage jobs in Silicon Valley um, for folks who don't have a college degree? And resoundingly, yes. Absolutely, there are. Um, And we qualified living wage as above uh, $40,000 to $50,000 a year starting salary. Um, and folks who can get a foothold in one of those jobs have a 70% uh, ch- uh, um, probability that they'll move up to the next income level around 70000 So that kind of opportunity doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, but we tell our moms, it's like, look, you're going to have to burrow in and live in a garage or share a house uh, and survive long enough to build your career so that you can market yourself in a different place oh. if you want to own a house. Um, and truthfully, if you want to rent a place, unless you can wait for a Section 8 voucher Or you know get accepted into into an affordable housing situation at a housing complex, and I know that that's like that seems depressing, and it kind of is. I get it, but it's like it's realistic, and I can't tell people like pipe dreams. Um, House ownership isn't isn't in the cards for most of the people we serve. That's just probably not in the cards for some of y'all. So, you know, so let's be real about it and let's, let's deal directly with the economic situations and also leverage the positive aspects of it, like the opportunities that exist here that are probably exist greater here than anywhere in the, in the world.
0: Yeah, It's a very realist approach to...
1: It, they're real lives and they're real children. I can't, again, right. I can't sell them a bill of goods.
0: Right. No, I, I appreciate that so much. Um, I've heard you use the phrase, breaking the economic cycle of poverty. Could you explain what you mean by that and what you just articulated? Is that part of the attempts to break the cycle, um, the economic cycle of poverty?
1: Yeah, and I, what I would say is that there's, there's two cycles. So there's some cycles of, of kids that we serve and mothers who come out of just completely dysfunctional backgrounds. Um, and in that case, it's really it's one work of giving perspective. The other group of people we serve are, are immigrants or children of immigrants, who actually come out of very noble situations. Uh, folks who have struggled to come across the border and have, have got a foothold here. So there's not, uh, the cycle, it's a different kind of cycle because because they're hard, and often hard workers. So it's about lear- teaching them how to navigate the system that exists here, specifically the education system, um, so that um, so that they can live a life different than their parents if they want. And I say that qualifying because what I never want to do is dictate to a student or a mother what I want for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Our, our job is to help them discover what they want and, and the the image of God that exists in them and then build on that.
0: Yeah. That's acknowledging the dignity within the person. And rather than so much of our, uh, so much of Christian ministry work sometimes is an imposition of what I believe is the right thing. What, you know, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, one example of that is
1: like, I mean, I want every one of our young people to go to go school. I mean, I think education is, is in many ways one of the magic bullets. Um, but some of them don't want to go to school. They want to go be a welder or an electrician. Um, and they can make a lot of money doing that. So it's like, hey, God bless you. Uh, what I don't want them to do is go work at McDonald's. Um, so we try to help steer them away from the jobs that are dead-end jobs that eventually might be put out by automation. Um, and into a career path that they can they can survive in.
0: Yeah. Does anybody have any questions for John before we? I got a, I got two more questions I want to ask you. But does anybody, as we did before, have a question for John? You spoke
1: about
0: advocacy. Can you describe
1: what does that look like? Advancement, what is advocacy and how do you it? Man, that is a really good question. I Re- think repeat the
0: questions for. So that.
1: what the question was is you know what does advocacy look like and w- what is it? Um, I think um, we have this conversation often also. We live in a very progressive area, so advocacy is is an interesting issue here. But um, but we have some societal issues that are keeping our folks in bondage. I mentioned two. There's others. Well, three, actually. There's primarily that we work with. Mass incarceration, immigration, um, and economic um, disparity. Um, So advocacy can be working with uh, congressmen and senators on policy initiatives. Uh, it can be, uh, you guys did an action campaign on the corner over by town and country, was it, or somewhere? You know, that's, that's advocacy in its own way. It's prophetic actions like that, and it's also working on policy and trying to change the laws and the systems that, um, that exist. Yeah.
0: Anybody else? Maybe one more out there? Rajesh?
1: I'm so glad you asked that question. So he asked a question about how you bring more cities um, together to, to, to work together for the, um, for against gentrification for housing. That's, that's the core problem. So, for example, in, on the peninsula between South City and San Jose, there are 31 different municipalities, each with their own set of their housing element, which dictates how much affordable housing they want. So, so you've got East Palo Alto and Hillsborough, Uh, in the same area that have a completely different view of what housing should be. Uh, So that's the endemic problem of this area. Um, You know, you look at like Chicago or even New York City. New York City, got five boroughs all under one city. So they can create a housing uh, direction that impacts arguably 15, 20 million people at one time. We don't have that situation. So... Part of the work we do at Housing Leadership Council is we go to all 31 of those city councils on a regular basis and advocate in each of the city councils for affordable housing policies. So it's unfortunately, it really there really needs to be a clarion call, talk about advocacy, from the people in the Bay Area and to force our governments to work together on, on a common affordable housing strategy. That will be the only thing that helps us, in addition to mass transit. Uh, you got to have a way to get out to the Central Valley in more than two and a half hours. I mean, it's just, that's where the affordable housing is. I'm, I'm a big proponent of high-speed rail. I know that's controversial, but it's like, if we can put people in Fresno and they can get back to Silicon Valley in 45 minutes on a, on a bullet train, hallelujah. I mean, that's a big issue, but... So, really, it's kind of those, it's, and it's that big sort of, like, common thing. The, the interesting thing is, is, like, the Bay Area has a history of doing that. When they, when they put BART in, BART was the most expensive public transit initiative in the history of the world. And can you imagine what BART, would the Bay Area be without BART today? But that crossed boundaries. We created a common, you know, like, an association. To, so, it can be done. I, it's just like today. I don't know that we have the same willpower that our parents did. So... I'm sorry. I just ranted, but that's (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: fantastic. Okay, John, I I have just two final questions because we're out of time. Your mission says, our mission is to equip individuals with financial education, life skills, and assets that enable them to live free from oppression and poverty. Our vision is to live in a society where every individual has the ability to fulfill their greatest human potential. My question is twofold. One, you, well, actually, I have a precursor question. Is AbleWorks explicitly a Christian organization? How would you?
1: We are, we call ourselves a faith informed.
0: Faith informed. So that leaves it ambiguous enough for,
1: I shouldn't go into it. I'll just... <laughs> no, no, I'll just say it. That's fine. I mean, we, uh, um, because we're existing in situations where, if I was marked an evangelical, I would get shut down immediately. Um, I'm not. So we are a faith informed organization. We're very clear about that. It's in our core values. When I walk into a room, I'll often introduce myself as Pastor John or Reverend John, um, but but I'll be very clear to say that we do not proselytize in the work that we do.
0: Right.
1: So. You know, and the truth is is that I have got so little pushback. I get more pushback from churches that say they won't preach enough than I do from hardcore secularists that say we're too Christian. You know, yeah. It's just the churches are the problem, not, not the world. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so uh, on that,
0: um, sorry, I'll edit that from the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: sorry about that. <laughs> um, my my question is, I think part of the tension, it's not black nor white, It's there's a lot of gray in this, is that, I can see some people I, idealizing financial freedom, or, or at least f- living free from oppression and poverty. And here's the Christian ethic that I, I hear from some pockets: the stop wanting more material possessions, stop wanting to get a you know high-paying job, stop wanting to like the the core issue is this desire for wanting more or or greed. And I would love to hear your, either your rebuttal or your, your reflections on that. Because I think part of the Christian ethic is like we shouldn't want these material possessions or we shouldn't want to have anything. Why, why are we pursuing an economic reality, especially when
1: everything's supposed to be just spiritual? So I, you're going to have to edit this one too. Sorry. Um, <laughs> most of the people that say that to me are rich white people who are living in their privilege. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a privileged thing to say that you... Shouldn't you have what I have so that nothing ticks me off more than that comment. Sometimes
0: (laughs) I knew I was asking the right question. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for being honest. I, I mean, I wouldn't have asked you here if I didn't want you to be honest. So I, I actually very much appreciate that. Um, we're out of time for today. Um, but you have, uh, you have just a few moments here. Any last words of encouragement this is a room full of people that are trying to follow Jesus. And we wanted to engage in this series because following Jesus has economic implications. And maybe it's just a reiteration of something that you said before, but I would love for you to leave us with the last exhortation, a pastoral exhortation of we need to walk out of here with Pastor John, Reverend John, sharing with us, here's the the nugget of an exhortation or an inspiration for how to be a follower of Jesus in this economic reality from your perspective? And I want to give you that last
1: word. I mean, that put a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> um, I will say what I felt when I walked in the room. Um, I, if, I was being, if I was being honest, I am being honest. Um, I, I often are, I am very discouraged by the evangelical church. Um, and I you know, often struggle to find a place that feels like home. Um, when I walked in the room and saw the diversity and, and and I know your history also, I was like oh this is um, this is a little glimpse of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be so i I really appreciate that, and I appreciate the fact that i 'm glad you 're not a two thousand people, honestly, it would change who you are um, so I, you know and it sounds sounds trite but it 's like you guys are doing something really special, and I think you should keep doing it um, because this itself is a prophetic expression of the kingdom of God. Um, and, I, and it's hard sometimes. I, I was a church planner, and I, and I had a, a smaller church, much smaller than this. You could probably fit it in the first two rows. Um, so, and I know what it's like, like to have to set up every week and do all the work that you guys do and not have all the amenities and things. But man, it is such a precious thing to have what you have here. Um, and it is so much the kingdom of God. So, so my final encouragement would be to understand and know what you have and how great it is. And second, to, uh, to do what I said, which is listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit guide your life. John,
0: thank you. Seriously, those words were so wonderful. Your insight, so appreciate it. Um, please stand if you are able for a benediction as we close out today. May you, may we, my friends, attune our hearts to the Spirit to be led in ways that bring liberation and jubilation to us, our families, and to this world. And may when we hear that voice of the Spirit leading us to behave in a way that is honorable to the Jesus economic vision, may we be faithful, may you be faithful in following through in being a key person to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen.